Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I am so excited today to introduce everyone to Christy Mansfield. Christy, thanks for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. Pleasure. Now, I'm going to share your bio and then we'll sort of jump into the conversation after that. But let me just quickly pause and go through that. So Christy Mansfield is the CEO and co-founder of SEA Data and Analytics. Christy is an inspirational thought leader, published author and an industry leader on the use of data for social benefit. Christy served on several boards, including the North Queensland Cowboys Community Foundation, the Stella Prize, the Australian Women Donors Network, Sharing Stories and New South Wales Government's Family and Community Services Advisory Board for Social Investment. In 2015, she was named one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence by the Australian Financial Review. Christy, as I said, a pleasure to have you with us. I do want to pause briefly and, and let the audience know we've got a wonderful Brave Feminine Leadership community and our conversation was inspired by someone in your team who, having heard some of the conversations, reached out and said, you have to speak to Christy. So you come with the endorsement of someone within our sort of network. So as I said, welcome. And I'm going to throw straight to you and just say for anyone in the audience who hasn't come across you before, who are you as a human being? And let's jump into your, your journey. So much, Alyssa, really generous of you. And uh, yeah, Danielle is I recently joined and I'm thrilled to have a team of incredible female leaders and men working to help me scale up SEER. Uh, I'm a mum, a mum of three children. Uh, I am an entrepreneur, I suppose. I am someone who likes to collaborate with people to get things done. And I think I've really done that throughout my whole career. Um, I'm inspired by the people that I've had the chance to work with across vast number of industries, whether it's tech or the philanthropic sector, the community sector, and now, of course, blending both of those industries in the work that we do at SEER through um, making data more accessible to people who are changing the world. Uh, and so I think um, for me, at, at, at the essence, who I am is, you know, willing to have a go to make a change when we see something that ought to be done or should be done, I think I've got, uh, you know, the uh, energy and the focus to, to work with others and collaborate with others to, to do that. And there's lots of examples of that through my career. Fantastic. So let's go right back to where it began. Where did you grow up? What was your family all about? And what did you think you were going to be when you were older? <laughs> That's a great question. I sort of believe that people do know very early on what they're um, about and what they're here to do, but it all unfolds. Uh, I, I grew up in the Sutherland Shire. My dad played rugby league for the St George Rugby League Club. My parents separated and divorced. That took my mum and my sister and I to the northern um, part of Sydney. And I grew up for my early teens in Kalara. And then we moved to French's Forest. Uh, and I went to the local public school. Uh, and I also was able to um, do an exchange program in Texas, oh. where, <laughs> yeah, where uh, remarkably I was placed in 
a town north in the panhandle of Texas called Amarillo, a very remote place, in a trailer park. Mm. And it was really at that time in my life that I understood what it really meant to, to live in poverty. And, and I think that was quite formative for me. Yes. Um, I had a beautiful family who I, I'm still connected with support me and I learned what the impact of um, income inequality really and, and an opportunity inequality really meant and you know I, I, I truly believe that um, that there are circles in life and of course now uh, with our work in SEER as we're scaling into North America and making our data sharing platform available we're going in through Texas mm. in low-income communities. And so I think that's, um, it's, I didn't quite understand at the time why <laughs> in this place, uh, but perhaps, you know, it gave me insight into the culture, into the needs, and uh, consequently uh, now I have the opportunity to work with people all over Texas who are um, using data to create a better world. Fantastic. Now, I can't wait to get into SEER and what it does and, and, you know, all of the exciting opportunities on that. But when you said you do believe at a young age, you kind of know what you're going to be and then it all unfolds. I love that. I mean, was there, was there an inkling well, for you? Yeah, well, people, people would say to me, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I'd say, oh, I want to work in computers. And they were like, oh, God, that's quite that's really nerdy like who does that at that point of time of course there were massive yes. blocks and my uncle was an engineer and I didn't know and I was, and you know green uh, DOS etc and somehow I thought that I wanted to do that and that was interesting and then I used to say to my mum you know I'm going to change the world and she goes she would always say you can't do that and so uh, you know perhaps I said about trying to prove her wrong. <laughs> so where did you go from your time in the US? Where did you then go from there? Yeah, so I came back, finished off uh, year 12, and I had always wanted to do the communications degree at Bathurst, uh, Charles Sturt University, which was a terrific place to study journalism, and I did that, uh, and I became a communications professional. Uh, and it was a great time um, being in Bathurst uh, with an incredible group of really smart people who wanted to, you know, um, see, saw journalism as an important vocation. And I went into organisational communication and marketing. From there, after those three years, and I actually had a sabbatical and I went to the UK and worked and travelled as well. I came back and got my first job in a PR agency and started working in um, PR for health, healthcare and also for tech. So tech's, tech's certainly been in there all the way through. So you're sticking true to the wanting to work with computers. What did you envisage at that stage? What did you, you know, looking ahead, did you see role models? Did you envisage a career for yourself in this space? Like what were, what were you thinking at that stage? I was really uh, excited about 
that moment because it was at the very beginnings of the, I guess you could say the second wave of entrepreneurship around the world in Australia, big telco and large tech. It was around the time of um, dot of the dot-com boom, you know, yes. around that period. So we could see huge applications. It was really exciting. And I, I was um, poached from one of my clients to set up marketing for a speech recognition technology company, which spun out of MIT. Mm-hmm. So I had the chance to work at the grassroots and the ground level with a scale-up. Um, there were only 150 people at the time. It was called Speechworks. And that company grew. It was acquired by another company called Scansoft. And I was based in Singapore running marketing and opening up new markets for speech recognition technology, including the technology we now know as Siri. And it was a really exciting time. It was an imaginative technology. It was a new category. And of course, this is quite some time ago, but, but you know, running marketing and building a category was... Uh, Uh, for a technology like that and it's very similar to what we're doing today actually uh was exciting people could see and get and grasp that our interaction as humans with computers was changing through the ability to uh, you know use speech recognition technology and uh, i found it really exciting so i was based up there for a number of years and it wasn't until i had my first child that i that i skipped out of that company and I did my master's in social investment and philanthropy at Swinburne. Okay. And so was what was the drive to go and do that, to go and study that? It was really interesting because I had, it was a fork in the road moment. And I think this is one of the first moments where I really committed my career to social innovation and, and, and focusing on, you know, how I was going to contribute constructively to society because I had the choice to either do an MBA or do this master's in philanthropy and social investment. And I I really did have a great role at Nuance. They recently were acquired by um, Microsoft. So multi-billion dollar company now, of course, but back then very early days and, you know, exciting. Yet it was at the time when... uh, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates set up their philanthropic foundation. It was around that time. It was around the very sort of new wave of philanthropy, as it's called. And I sort of felt like, you know, I had skills that I could contribute to the social sector that perhaps could be constructive. And so I made that choice rather than do my MBA, I would pivot and uh, go on this kind of interesting exploration around how do you use the philanthropic dollar as the innovation money in the social sector. So it was kind of like, you know, how do you use startup money to think about uh, changing, changing the social sector? Uh, and, you know, it was a interesting, I gave up, uh, I suppose, a, a CMO role at, in the, in the region for that. Okay. And I imagine that would have been a, I mean, was that a challenging decision for you at the time? Not really, because I was, really excited I was uh hadn't I hadn't had my first child at that point in time although I was thinking about that and I was also had those um rumblings of you know is this what it's really about yes is this it you know my pathway from here 
is going to be global head of something for big tech. And is that what I really want to do um, with my time, with my energy? Um, and am I going to learn enough? That was the other thing. But of course, you know, I ended up going back to big tech and running APAC go to market for Oracle. But um, I've weaved in and out of, uh, uh, you know, the social sector and tech throughout my life. And now it's here. It's really the blending of both. And it's so fascinating listening to you sort of talk about some of those decision points along the way, because you know, um, from our conversation, I'm super motivated to see more females, should they choose to, but wanting to consider pushing into CEO roles. You know, I want to see more females in senior executive roles um, or founder CEO roles, you know, but just elevating sort of leadership. And it's really interesting because one of the challenges I keep coming up against is, or hearing about, I should say, is keeping women in some of these corporate environments. And so what you've described just there is so common about people reaching a point where they're thinking, is this all that there is? What's the impact I'm going to have? And then opting to pursue and combine a whole series of, of passions just fascinates me listening to you talk about that. So you then went and studied your social enterprise um, and then you got immersed into that world, didn't you? Yeah, so it was a Master's in Philanthropy and Social Investment at yes. Swinburne. It was the first cohort. Now you can study um, social impact in a number of universities and philanthropy, et cetera, but it was really the first uh, cohort of this idea of professionalising this notion of grant-making and um, social investment, which is now known as impact investment. Yes, and I, of course, kind of went on this, what I call my 10-year uh, philanthropic sabbatical. Yep. <laughs> I had my kids and I worked with many high net worth individuals and families and corporates on uh, grant making strategy and impact investment strategy, which is how I met my chair, Deanne Weir, who is a major investor in SEER data and analytics. And, uh, you know, I worked alongside her as she was thinking about her philanthropic vision and strategy, uh, helped her set up her foundation and, and ultimately um, make one of the largest public gifts at the time to women and girls, which was a million dollars to the Sydney Women's Fund and International Women's Development Agency. And that's maybe uh, 10 years ago now. Mm. And what I learned through that is, you know, my question, my um, question to myself was, how do you apply small amounts of philanthropic dollars to make the biggest possible impact in society? Well, what can you do to change um, social issues and impact potentially um, policy that was going to get a better outcome for people uh, in our society and, and in, our, in our world? And, and how can you use philanthropy? How is philanthropy a lever for social change? Um, so that, that exploration was remarkable, was um, really enjoyable. It was an incredible opportunity to meet amazing people doing work on the ground. And I figured out a couple of things. The first is, um, you know, I really see the opportunity for significant change in society and communities when you enable and, and back the grassroots when you enable people working who are working in collaboration who see a problem and are working together to get things done so much can happen 
at that local, in place at that local level, yet it's really underfunded and under-resourced. And so I, I learned that when you, when you do uh, invest uh, either philanthropically or structurally or, or in different ways in place, then that's an incredibly long-term but powerful way to break the cycle of disadvantage or to empower people at the local level to make decisions that are right for them. And, uh, you know, that that's really uh, was my key insight through my 10 years of work. And I got to work with lots and lots of people. And I think, you know, one of my fondest memories is, is working with women in southwestern Sydney who were very practically solving problems for what was needed in their community. So in Warwick Farm and, and Liverpool, and I've written about this and yes. the work of the great women, and, and, and this is kind of scaled across many places. And I got to work with a number of incredible people at all different levels, whether they were doing the work on the ground, whether they were funders, my team who have now gone on to scale up um, Global Sisters. So Mandy Richards and Heather um, have scaled this business. All of it came out of these incredible insights and the work we were doing, I think, on the ground. And, and there's so much of it happening all over Australia now. It's very exciting. But I, I really do remember that moment when the Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, came to Warwick Farm and was talking with a number of different people and uh, for International Women's Day. And clearly it was like, you know, never doubt that quote from Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. And that's really true. Yes. So you, from that period, as you said, you cycled back into big corporate for a period of time. And then I guess I'm so interested in how did you see the opportunity for, for all of those passions of yours coming together into what you're doing now? Yeah. So like a lot of people, I burnt out um, because it was, uh, well, I had three children who were, who were very young yeah. and they were under uh, three under seven. So that was exhausting in itself. And I was running the Sydney Community Foundation. So I, I, I really decided to go back into the corporate sector. I was appointed to uh, the role of managing director at Fifth Quadrant, which was Dr. Katrina Wallace's yes. uh, consulting firm as she was scaling up her tech business at that time. And then from there, I was appointed after a couple of years uh, working with the team there. I, I ran a team. I ran a, a team of uh, designers, strategists, and data scientists. Uh, uh, we were working on major pieces of work for large corporates and businesses. And then I was appointed into Oracle as the head of customer experience strategy for the company in Asia Pacific and worked in the go-to-market team for the SaaS business. Uh, so in the uh, customer experience world, I had built up a, a reputation. And then also in the philanthropic world, I built, built up a reputation. So this was really, SEER was the blending of both. Oracle was a fantastic period as well. Uh, I got to work across APAC with a terrific team on um, in a company that was tra transitioning from on-premise to the cloud through its SaaS business. 
and really learnt a great deal about uh, go-to-market planning and strategy for SAS, as well as I was the uh, APAC thought leader. Mm -hmm. So I had the chance to talk with people a lot uh, about strategy. And I, uh, that was an incredibly fantastic time for learning as well. Christy, can I just um, pause for a minute um, just with you sharing burnout, which is such an enormous focus right now, um, I think in terms of the last couple of years on top of everything else people have been juggling. I know people in the audience will be interested to hear, how did you, how did you navigate that, that time? It was really difficult. It was really difficult because my marriage also broke down at that time as well. So I think um, <laughs> what I remember most clearly is, you know, regrouping on work, settling myself as now a single mum mm. and with um, three great kids and just thinking about what do I need the future to be for the next five to ten years. And uh, I just focused on that. It was, it was a hard time because exhaustion it really takes over and, yes. and I was really tired. But uh, I think um, I had terrific family and friends around me. I had an amazing nanny who is now our deep family friend who my children adore. So I had a lot of people supporting me. But I, I would say that, you know, going back and being intellectually stimulated in business was fantastic because it was a really good focus mm. and I could see that financially it was easier and and that was good however it's pretty hard without um you know policy that supports women to access adequate support and childcare to stay in significant roles. Yes. It really is. Um, and I think that part of the reason, because there are transitions and, of course, and there are some women who find, you know, such as myself and many of my peers actually and friends at the time have gone through separations with children. And unfortunately, there is that challenge of, what do I do with my career? Yes. How am I going to manage this? Uh, I muddled through it. I wouldn't say that I was able to figure out what that silver bullet was. It, yeah. I got lucky because I had people who were around me who gave me so much support. But structurally, from a policy perspective, uh, I think that all women partnered or not, should have access to childcare support in an environment that, you know, makes it hard for women to stay in. Mm, absolutely. Well, you um, and, you know, can never underestimate the impact of a fantastic nanny. Uh, we, like you, have, uh, you know, a nanny who's become an incredible family friend now that the kids don't need don't need a nanny anymore. Were you comfortable during that phase to ask for help? Not really. It took yeah. me a number of years. 
to be able to deal with that. I had I had au pairs living with me, which was really, and we're still very close as well. But I think then, you know, Fran, who was my my nanny at the time, she was just always there, and she still is always. When I had to travel for Oracle, I was on the road two weeks of the month in APAC in Asia. So I wasn't trusting my kids to stay with her or she would stay with us. And she was so generous. Um, and I, I was very fortunate, she and her partner. But I don't know that all women are as lucky no. as me. Uh, and uh, I think that it's really, really tough. I didn't have family in Sydney either. So I got really lucky. Mm. so um well done navigating you know all of that time and period and and i just pause on it briefly because i know how realistic burnout burnout is right now and i know yeah. from the audience listening to things like people learning to ask for help and those sorts of things how powerful they can be so there came a point yes well, uh, I was going to say, also, I've only just figured out how to do self-care properly. Oh, well, then tell <laughs> us. <laughs> I mean, why did it take me so long? I'm looking at why it? did it take me so long? So what is that? Um, yeah. How to avoid burnout, right? Well, I mean, everyone talks about this, but it's not until you actually put it into practice that you realise, I've realised how critical it is, which is sleep. Yes, Oh, my goodness. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Um, okay, I want to say exercising, but for me, it's the ocean. Yeah. I find it really soothing for me because I tend to be quite a heady person, yeah. always thinking. So it's a great way to be in nature and very joyful. Uh, and eating well. Yeah. So... I've got to ask you then, so does that mean you make those things a priority where you wouldn't have done it before? I've kind of built it into my life, yeah. So I, that's right. I, I guess I was in a cycle perhaps before where I wasn't as healthy as what I could should be. Yes. Um, so now I definitely, I'm in bed really early. Uh, I've cut out alcohol, which is fantastic. Yeah. I swim a couple of times a week I did I was trying to learn how to surf I'm terrible um I'd like to get back into it just use the word yet I can't surf yet I can't surf yet I do have a goal <laughs> to be slightly better than I am in the next year which which would be fantastic uh and you know making sure that the Fridge is actually stocked with food that's easy to do um, and just being a bit more mindful about how I manage it all. And that has made a massive difference. Uh, simple yet a huge difference Yeah, because uh, it's incredibly important to me to be present with the people um, that I love and who I'm working with uh, for my work and for my children. So of course, I've got three teenagers and being present to all their specific needs, uh, emotional needs and practical needs are really important. And there's been lots of times where I've, you know, uh, had some of those mother of the year moments, but I think that's pretty normal. 
Yeah. And be kind to ourselves because we're all out there having those mother of the year <laughs> moments. So it's, it's okay. Um, Christy, I always, um, you know, sometimes when we have these conversations and it turns to things like balance, you know, there's that inner critic that pops up sometimes. And I can hear my own inner critic sometimes saying, well, we wouldn't ask guys those questions. But then I think the bulk of the caring still falls to females. So in that context, it is relevant because it's it's our reality. Um, it's our reality. It, I don't think there's an escape from it at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, okay, there came a point then where it's I'm hopping off the corporate side of things again and I'm, I'm going to become a founder and go yeah. my direction. So tell us about, you know, the, the evolution to that point. So this was a this was obviously probably the biggest step that yeah. I've ever made in my career. Uh, I saw the opportunity, I saw the need for data at a local level and data access to empower people to ha- not only have a seat at the table but to change policy because in today's world, and this is not retracting as far as I can see, data really is knowledge and power and it's driving so many decisions across society and the economy. So making sure that people who are working at the local level, working to change lives in their community, had access to data, to bridge that data divide was for me a pretty important, worthwhile problem to solve, a hard problem to solve, but yet a really worthwhile one. Um, So it was kind of like that. I see the problem. It's a really big one. You know, the way that people even today are doing it is they'll outsource their data work or their uh, analysis work to a consultant or a researcher in a university for 80 to 100 grand. It takes six months. It's a report on the shelf. But with our platform, you can do it in a couple of hours and it's always updated, right, for free if it's open data. So this is the disruption that we've created but I could see if we don't address this, then we're not going to create the change that we that we see. You know, um, funding will continue to be less efficient. People will continue to be um, disempowered because they don't have a seat at the table when so many decisions are data-led and data-informed. And also, um, and so there's a power shift to address the power asymmetries in society there that we're, we're uh, chasing to address and then also there's this kind of notion that people because they're afraid of uh, you know numbers are not for me statistics are not for me I don't didn't wasn't good at maths etc etc then therefore the data age is not for me Uh, and we want to give people more confidence working with data and make it fun uh, to tell their own stories with data so I saw the massive problem and I just kind of thought if not me who Uh, I'll I'll have a go. So help the audience understand, because for you that problem's really clear. Let's bring it to life then with, you know, what's an example of something that has happened as a result or that you imagine happening as a result of this? Yeah. So um, now we're working in more than 35 communities around Australia, facilitating local data sharing so that, people who are uh, working on outcomes uh, together in collaboration can see the problem and can see what's working, track to the impact 
and make changes along the way. Continuous learning, I mean, this is pretty well understood in the corporate sector that data can be a tool for continuous learning, innovation, improvement, new products, using data as an asset, et cetera. So we're using that to apply it to the social sector. So in other words, you know, um, making the invisible visible and being able to see what's happening in the community uh, to make better decisions earlier than later and hopefully making change. So an example of that is the largest data sharing project in Australia, which we help facilitate through our platform. The SEER platform is in Burke. Um, the key outcome the Burke Tribal Council is working to achieve is to keep people, young people in particular, out of the criminal justice system through a justice reinvestment model. Uh, so Maranooka, which is the team partnered with um, the New South Wales uh, Legal Services to create the first justice reinvestment project in, a, in Australia, to prove that if you were to divert people out of the justice system, that would not only improve lives and the fabric of community and, 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 and lives of families, but would also reduce costs from the justice system. To order to, to do that, data is pretty essential. Mm. So we're sharing data across 15 different contributors, federal agencies, state agencies, the local police, local schools, health, as well as the not-for-profits who are delivering services on the ground and then bringing it in together into a single asset, a data asset that's owned by the Burke Tribal Council in the frame of First Nations data sovereignty so that people can actually see what's happening and then what services need to change to, to get a better outcome for people. And one example of that is uh, and, and this is a very, just one example. So these, uh, the data is giving people insight to take better actions because that's really what it's about uh, across many different, you know, domains. But in this case, uh, one that really stands out for me is long suspensions. So the data was showing that the schools were, had a lot of kids, there was a spike in long suspensions. But at the same time, the crime and police data was showing that there was more uh, family violence at home. So unfortunately, the kids who were along suspensions were in homes who were unsafe at that point. So a very simple intervention is to hold and ask and, and hold the suspensions at school right. to give those wraparound services to keep kids engaged. And then holistically think about how to support communities and, and support those families. Uh, these are not silver bullet solutions, you know, changing um, culture and addressing some of the, the biggest priorities in Australia and the world, such as violence, family violence, uh, and um, improving pathways for people into employment through education. These are complex issues and it requires a lot of agreement and collaboration to prevent these kinds of um, systemic issues as well. So data is a very useful tool to make it visible and then for people to come together and make decisions that are going to improve outcomes. And, you know, people who work in corporates who are using data understand that this is, and also in the public sector, understand that, okay, this is a great tool. And so we're applying it in this context. 
Wow. So, I mean, there are so many powerful applications for that. And just listening to that one there, I mean, that's that's incredible. Um, it's it's bit it's but it's logical, isn't it? It's, it's not like well, don't you think? Right. It's like why is it not happening? You're right. It's logical, and I love your approach around if not me, then who. But to have brought together, you know, you're looking backwards, all of your various career steps make perfect sense to here, including your time in Texas, um, yeah. where, you know, firsthand you got to experience some of those. Well, the beautiful Wendy McCarthy, who we all, of course, admire and look up to for the incredible pathways she's cut, along with uh, so many of her uh partners in crime I suppose like Quentin Bryce I mean she said to me Christy you'll make a better impact when you do that weaving you know it's great to do the weaving from one part of an industry to another and you take the learnings and you weave it together to ultimately you know see the pathway forward that that you bring uh, and then part of what uh, my role then is is for uh, me to help other people see the opportunity and then encourage our team and our customers to, you know, take the opportunity and, and to move forward with it. I guess the other thing that is always really clear to me is technology is only ever about people. It's only about people. And so it's interesting to understand the motivations and the needs of uh, the people we serve, which are those people on the ground who need access to this data and then in in that build a product a platform that is meeting those needs for people of all skill sets to tell data stories that's one part but then the other part is and I think this is where my um, background having worked for scale-ups and big tech is that you know how to go to market and how to scale and I think uh, that's a unique sort of thing that I bring uh, to the work I'm doing right now. Can I ask, because you're, you know, with what you're doing today is showing such incredible leadership um, in a space where needs it, what's your perspective on whether leaders are born or made? I think it's, it's I have been thinking about this. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a, a bit of both. Uh, I think uh, in my personal case, a lot of it has been uh, about learning about people and how to support people uh, to um, be the best they can be. Mm. Really simple things like asking people what they need, giving people the space to be honest, to be open, to have terrific um, conversations where they feel safe. I mean, we know safety is an important element to any success of any team thanks to the work of the amazing team at Google and Claire Hatton etc but um, so true so I think as a leader always coming back to really understanding how to support the team and the people that you're working with giving them the opportunity to uh, to be open and honest to live out their values who they are as people is incredibly important, but also making sure there's alignment, communicating, setting the strategy and, uh, you know, being a role model that people can respect is important. Mm. 
On the uh, born part, I think that there are natural tendencies, I suspect, in leaders, myself. Uh, I'm naturally a risk taker. And uh, I think that constructive risk taking has, has helped me um, imagine that uh, that opportunity that we're building. And we see this as a billion dollar company, a global company. And uh, I think there's, there's an appetite for risk that uh, is probably in my DNA mm. that has helped with that. Is there, can you call out one experience more than others that, um, that really, you know, grew your leadership capabilities? Uh, I would love to say that there were the moments when there was great success and, uh, you know. <laughs> I suspect I know what's coming, though. <laughs> <laughs> there were the moments when things were really tough. Yes. Yeah. So uh, when, you know. Um, yeah, anyone who's scaled a mountain or climbed a mountain will know it's those moments where <laughs> you don't think you can go any further and you do that teaches you the most. And I think certainly. There's nothing like scaling a global tech business that you've started from nothing to, uh, to help with that refining process. And there have been moments where I didn't know I had it in me, but yet I did. And what that has led to for me is great trust in other people, in the vision and a conviction, a belief and a conviction, because uh, you know, I feel like it's those companies that do go global that have an incredible momentum and belief, not just for the founders, but everyone who's involved, including uh, the community of users. And we have that too. Terrific support of our users um, in SIM. Uh, what do you look for in leaders joining your organisation? Because I imagine you're going to have a lot of people lining up uh, you know, wanting to be part of something that's got such a strong purpose. What are you looking for? I personally look for people who are a terrific cultural fit. And what I mean by that for our company is people who have a great interest in learning and humility and uh, I, I agree, I suppose, or, or align with the values that the company was started with and by my co-founder in our early team, which are to be in service, to genuinely be in service to uh, the people we work with, to each other, and to this mission to bridge the data divide and to really enable data democratization for all people of all skill sets. So to be in service to that and to have that kind of inquiry, that, that openness to what that might evolve as it evolves and changes and the category itself is now forming which is really exciting mm. uh, so to be in service to to be committed to open and honest communication with each other there's not really a, a strong hierarchy in our organization uh, I, I appreciate that I like having a lot of fun with the people yeah. that I get to work with so um, you know people who have a you know an interest in having some fun as well and not only with the people I work with, but with our customers and with our partners as well. Uh, and then, of course, like, you've got to be a good problem solver. This is a complex area. 
that we are sorting out. I often think about it sometimes as imagine the pile of Lego on the ground, like we're sorting it out and making it possible to build beautiful things and tell beautiful stories with data. So you have to be a terrific problem solver to, to do this work. And that's what I'm looking for. So it sounds like Lego Masters uh, fans would be uh, would be good people to come your way as well. Thank you. And, you know, like people who want to do something big in the world. Yeah. You said earlier, uh, and it's still sort of resonating with me, but you're talking about um, you're, in, you're in your head a lot. And so the chance to get into the ocean and to get into nature helps with that. What do you... Being in our head a lot often means there's a voice that is not always giving us the best messages we want to hear. How do you how do you tackle that? Oh, I think self-doubt is a terrific motivator. Yeah, <laughs> so tell, tell us more. How does it motivate you? Have I thought about everything? Um, am I making the right decisions? Is this strategy going to work? I mean, oftentimes uh, as a founder, you are presenting a vision that you want people to see and 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 buy into uh, not only the team and investors also customers of course so um i think that i think through quite analytically whether or not uh, what i am communicating and how we're going to market it and our product is that meeting the needs of all those people that we are presenting our vision to and uh and so that's what I mean about being in my head a lot and it sounds like that self-doubt is about the things you're doing not about your capability I don't worry so much about my capability anymore I suppose that was perhaps before I, um, but I feel I've got enough experience of things working out yes that I'm not particularly concerned about have I got what it takes to um to to lead I, I suspect right now it's the things I would be concerned about is am I the best I can be for my team and for my uh, customers and if I'm the best I can be, I know that I'm taking good care of myself. And so yeah. as simple as that is, as hard as it is, it, it's very important. And I do, I do think about that. Any magic to what you say no to? I imagine there's an enormous, you know, array of competing demands on your time professionally and personally. It's becoming more focused in terms of where I put my time and energy. Uh, I am becoming quite uh clear about is is this the right place to put my time and energy and I think managing energy is incredibly important uh, and I'm getting better at that so I'll say no to things or I'll ask uh because you know if, if it's customer work and if it's uh work to build a category and I don't have that uh time and energy to focus on that I'll ask other members in the team or the board to weigh in and you know that's what a shared vision is about mm. you know sharing the opportunities and the um 
the pathway for for us to grow and you know one person can't do it or a couple of people can't do it it's got to be distributed so I'll focus on what I'm quite you know good at and what brings me a lot of joy as well and what I know I have to get done as the next best step to achieve the climb and then I'll uh, distribute everything else out and to people who want to who 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 find that that's their joyful thing to do. So I'd love to ask you the final question I ask everybody in these conversations, which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Brave feminine leadership means to me uh, being able to take the step and corral the support that's needed to, to play really big, mm. play big, in the world uh, and that is what excites me that idea of being in the arena I think it's Brenna Brown and others other entrepreneurs think about this I suppose having the dust on the face but enjoying the journey as well playing really big and going for it I think that's what it means I would love to see more women take those steps and to you know make their visions and dreams a reality i think more and more in the tech startup world there's more early stage investment for women and we really need that because we need more women in solving the problems that they can see solving the problems that uh perhaps men haven't been able to see uh, and uh, i think it's important to invest in those early stage and build those pipelines of female entrepreneurs because that will mean there'll be more investment at um, company stages like ours and further along when they're scaling globally. Mm. And it's, it's really important. Christy, thank you so much for joining the conversation and, and for deciding to put your time and energy into this conversation this morning. So it's been wonderful to have the chance to chat with you. So on behalf of the, uh, of the audience, I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you. I'm really grateful for the chat. 